Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Talk Recorded live. This is your MC and musical tour guide, Big Papa Stampley. Welcome to the Gallant Goose and Friends a weekly production of the Gallant Goose Radio Network airing live from coast to coast and around the world on Thursday nights at 6.45 Eastern here on TalkShoe.com, program number 139-335. The primary focus of this interactive program is to discuss mortgage foreclosure defense and attack strategies and related homeowner issues with our guests and callers. We come to you from the birthplace of the American Bar Association and the home of Abraham Lincoln, Al Capone, The Untouchables, and Operation Greylord, where the motto is, vote early, vote often, and according to some politicians, even when you're dead. Here you'll find general information about home loans and ownership, notes and mortgages, as well as pointers on lenders, banks, funding, securitization, regulations, titles, credit damage, and more plus different forms of resolution when things go wrong between homeowners and lenders, including RESPA, FDCPA, and tiller rescission. With the help of our guests, we'll try and find general answers to your questions on these and other popular topics. Now please remember, this program is for general information only. No official advice regarding accounting, law, taxes, or other regulated services given here. If you need a lawyer or accountant, please hire one authorized to work in your state. This is your MC and musical tour guide, Big Papa Stanley, reminding y'all, when it comes to saving your house, don't let the bank of blues stop you from getting all your clues. We thank y'all for being here tonight. Let's try and help each other. Now please welcome the host of the show, Greg the Goose. Welcome, everyone, to episode 33 of the Gallant Goose and Friends here on Talk Show number 139-335. Today is Thursday, May 12th, 2016. We appreciate you all being here. Please keep passing the word along to your friends and family so our flock can grow. First, we want to thank all of you for making last week's show, our first roundtable meeting, a blockbuster success. With more downloads and podcasts than any other show we have presented in the past year. Thank you all, our guests and our callers included. We hope that it serves you well. Our topic for tonight is how applying the organic laws of the United States of America can secure superior standing for you. Because the right of the American people to unlimited self-government cannot be denied. How would you feel if you learned that over 200 years ago, a shell game was put in place where a group of men cleverly substituted a form of government upon you significantly different from the one you learned about in high school or college by literally borrowing the parts of underlying laws of the American Republic, a clone was put in place so you would not notice the difference and so that you would volunteer to be part of it. The problem is 
that in this world of the clones, you have no God-given, unalienable rights. Tonight, for the first time on the program, we are delighted to have with us the top researcher and teacher of organic American law. Now in his 70s, researcher, author, and former attorney, Professor Dr. Eduardo M. Rivera, has devoted over 50 years of his life to the study and practice of law, with the past 20 years focusing on the immutable foundational elements of American law laid out in the Declaration of Independence, Articles of Confederation, Northwest Ordinance, and the Constitution. He has agreed to share with us some of his knowledge and lessons to help us understand how and why you have the absolute right to self-governance and what to do with it once you claim it back. But before we get ahead of ourselves, a few important words. The Gallon Goose is not associated with any other program, law firm, accounting firm, or any other legal accounting or other licensed professional entity and is the sole responsibility of the private group of friends which constitute it. All opinions expressed are those of the participants alone and no warranties expressed or implied. This call is being recorded for rebroadcast, so we do not recommend disclosing your private contact information. To contact or be contacted by other participants on this call, please email the host and we'll do our best to connect you offline. To hear past recordings, just go to www.talkshoe.com forward slash tc forward slash 139335 and select the episode. Also, to read the chat text from any past show, just go to www.chatgrabber.com. Type in our show number 139335 and select the episode. If you would like to receive a weekly email notifying you of the program, please email the host at thegallongoose at gmail.com with the subject line, please add me to the goose. To be removed from the mailing list, use the subject line, please pluck my goose. Welcome back, everyone. Remember, justice should be blind, not you. Realize you are as powerful as the tools that you master. So don't forget to check out some of those tools at www.howtowinincourt.com slash win slash goose. And for those of you experiencing collectors or court cases messing with your credit scores, please remember to go to www.fixmyreport.com for a fast, easy, and final solution to credit score and credit damage. For those of you who don't already know about our guest, here's a little bit of background. Dr. Rivera was born in Cochise County, Arizona, about three miles from the Mexican border in an adobe house built by his father. He attended the local high school in Compton, California, where his obsession about the workings of government blossomed and became so focused, he was already being viewed as the local expert in all things governmental by peers and teachers. In 1960, he joined the 309th Army Security Agency, then a part of the Army Intelligence Division. After basic training at Fort Leonard Wood in Missouri, he was enrolled in traffic analysis school at Fort Devens, Massachusetts, where he learned elementary code breaking, and as it turns out, a skill that would serve him well as a researcher later in life. He attended California State University in Los Angeles, where he earned his Bachelor's of Arts degree in Government and Public Service in 1968. He then entered the UCLA Law School, where he completed his Juris Doctor degree in 1971, followed by, in 1972, him passing the California Bar Exam to become a member of the California Bar. He went on to practice general law for some 34 years. His practice grew, and during the peak of his career, he was managing four law offices in the Los Angeles area. His experience in that practice allowed him to find and see that there were gaping holes in our legal and governmental systems. 
So what would cause a 63-year-old man to turn his back on a successful law practice after over three decades and instead become immersed in the discoveries about the underlying truth of our laws and government? Dr. Rivera says it was as though pieces of a puzzle had been gradually coming together in his mind over the years. When the big picture was finally formed, he saw that this was something so important and so ignored in the American educational system that he knew he had an obligation to teach what he had found to others. The proof of his discoveries are found in the organic laws of the United States of America. His solutions to the problems of unlimited government and its written laws are embodied in what he calls the work. He welcomes everyone to check it out for themselves and consider enrolling as a student at www.organiclaws.org to learn more about ways to return to a life of lawful self-governance. So without further ado, let's please welcome Dr. Ed Rivera to the show. Hi, Ed. How are you doing tonight? I feel great. Very happy to be on your show. We're delighted to have you as well. Is there anything you want to catch up on? Did I make any errors in your introduction there? No, that's generally the uh, the way uh, I was educated. Uh, I uh, moved on from Compton, which is uh, celebrated today in, in, in the news and in society as uh, a place of song and gangsters, to uh, Pico Rivera and uh, then uh, uh, Whittier. I graduated from uh, uh, high school in uh, Whittier. Okay. Um, a lot of the folks on the show don't realize how much time we took to actually prepare for this program. So we both came to an understanding, I think, that uh, one of the first things that we need to do is try to help everybody put their minds in the proper perspective before we start, right? Correct. Um, so to begin, perhaps let's give the audience a moment to reset that collective consciousness on the subject of government and who is supposed to be controlling whom. With that in mind, please take us back in time to the late 1700s. Help us frame tonight's conversation based upon what your research has shown to be the underlying foundational beliefs and goals of the American people at that time when this giant snowball that we call the United States of America was first forming. And please, have at it. Okay. Uh, the situation in, in America in the late uh, 1700s uh, was one of uh, economic uh, success. They were they were doing pretty well in, in uh, separated from England by 3,000 miles after they had first come to America to escape England's economy. So they had uh, a good thing going until. Uh, Great Britain became involved in, in several wars with uh, France and Spain, and as a result of those wars, needed financing, needed money, and of course, money back in those days was gold and silver, which Americans had not very little of, because the, the uh, those metals had not been discovered in uh, New England, the, the thirteen colonies, until a little later. So the English government imposed taxation heavily in, in, uh, in the colonies, 
which set it off the colonists to a large degree uh, because they could not uh, they could not find the species gold and silver to pay those taxes. It was a consequence. They decided it was a lot easier to uh, put that on the mother country and try to start their own government. So what we have in the, in early America is a situation where. It's economically unfeasible for Americans to continue a relationship with the uh, old English government, which was uh, the uh, monarch- English monarchy. King George III was the was the beginning was beginning his reign of more than sixty years, and um, English Parliament was uh, passing laws that were to be called the, the Intolerable Acts, which uh, fomented the revolution in America. Could that have been in part at all because of the fact that the gentleman knows, known as King George III wasn't even British? He was actually Prussian, and he really had no scope of understanding of what the relationships were with their various territories? That's absolutely true. He Hanoverian German, but it was still a carryover from, uh, from ancient times when uh, all, the, all the rulers in the world were tyrants. And uh, Americans had gotten along without uh, tyrants all the time uh, before uh, George III arrived on the throne. And they were uh, anxious to continue without the the tyrannical government, which uh, all monarchies clearly are. So was that something that was being stepped up by his advisors or something that he personally was willing to do? And that's just a guess, right? Well, what, what happens in, in England is that uh, the king's power is, over time, uh, diluted. It's, it's, it's still the basic idea of a tyrant, uh, a monarchy is. And so uh, the, the parliament is the recipient of the king's power, but it's still royal command. Royal, it's still a royal domain where there are subjects instead of citizens. The uh, the Americans believed in citizenship and uh, the right to self-government because they had been doing it for so many years simply because uh, the England was too busy and uh, the Americans presented no real uh, value or no substantial value to the uh, mother country. Well, what a lot of folks on the call might find interesting is if you just go Google Scotland right now, you'll find that even here today in 2016, Scotland is just now disassembling their uh, land holdings by lords of estates so that individual men and women can actually own pieces of property and no longer have to be tenants. And it's just happening right now as we live today, showing you that the concept of Controlling property by the powers that be is a very difficult thing to dislodge. What do you think? Well, it's the old domain. It's good to be king because he owns everything technically, though people have a claim on their homes and their other properties. But the the monarchy is supreme. So that's how you get, that's how government is created uh, over time. The uh, the king creates a corporation called government that runs the country while he's uh, enjoying himself uh, with his uh, treasures and his power. 
So all all government is a result of uh, a dictatorship of some kind. Well, Ed, you've been a quite a strong advocate and irresistible force in the area of individual rights for quite a long time now. I recall a story that you mentioned with a professor at UCLA, which might have been one of the places that started you on this uphill path. I think a lot of folks are interested in maybe following this kind of a path, but they might feel intimidated by things that are going on around them. Would you mind sharing with our audience what got you started and what keeps you going and being unafraid of those things that are around you? Well, uh, law school is, is, is a kind of intimidating uh, experience for, for all the people who go to law school. Because the first year of law school is just uh, loaded with uh, work, study, and the breaking of all your ideas of what law really is. Yeah, ultimately, though, you come to the conclusion that, that the law is going to be told to you by the judges, and uh, so you had better get used to it. Uh, and so that that really works uh, in most situations because the, the professors become the symbols of the, the judges you're going to face in the actual uh, law practice. So law becomes something that is not understood directly as uh, in black letter law. The way uh, George, uh, not George Washington, but the way uh, Abraham Lincoln learned the law by reading about it in a book, you know, called the Horn Book. Uh, the Horn Book because the covers were uh, made of a tough material from uh, the, the horns of uh, cattle. I mean, it's really tough uh, material. And uh, so that gives you an idea how they respected the law back then, that you could, the judges would tell you in, in so many words what the law actually was, and then you could read about it in the book. From there, we get the idea that oh, judges can change, start changing the law a little bit at a time by by uh, writing these uh, these opinions in uh, books that are not as as substantial as a horn book, uh, but still black letter law because it's printed law as a, as opposed to what people understand to be the law as uh, the the law of thought, the law of uh, nature, unwritten law. Which is, uh, of course, stronger than uh, than uh, written law, but of course not part of written law in the courts. So, what keeps you going? Well, that's the, I think is, is is what keeps me going uh, to make it a lot a lot more simple than what I was taught. You're taught laws that uh, have really very little relevance in the future in uh, in your practice because of what you're dealing with in in in. Today's legal society is uh, written law that uh, is constantly uh, changing by uh, government regulation. So would it be fair to say that you are in search of immutable law? The discovery of that that law is is what everybody should be after. Because uh, a wise Greek man, we don't don't, uh, make the law, we discover it. We just discover it, yes? So that's the immutable, unalienable rights that uh, consist of uh, your power to connect with the immutable laws of the universe. That sounds really amazing. So if we were to sit down for the first week of, let's say, your basic class, 
in law at your website, imagining that we actually had a classroom to sit down, right? What would be the overview and curriculum that you would cover in that first week, just as a reference? Well, like law school, it's, it's reading. And the, the, what you read are the four organic laws. Once you get a taste of them, you find, oh, well, they're just as, almost as complicated as any other law. Because uh, written law is, is, a, is a difficult thing to understand unless you have an orientation to it. So my orientation to it has been uh, the post that I had written over a period of four or five years. And then those posts are given little bites of, of uh, the way a lawyer thinks so that you can start thinking like, like a lawyer yourself paying attention to every detail of the written law and the concept of, of uh, justice or equity that was behind that law so that you could understand where that law came from. Because written law has a, has a past history. And with our, our, uh, we are fortunate that the four organic laws kind of track that history from the Declaration of Independence, which separated us from the law of King George III, the rest of the monarchy, to uh, the present, which is uh, the Constitution, which is a law for the government of the states that formed the Confederacy, and uh, the law for the territory that is going to be added to the first 13 states. That whole idea of how uh, law is transformed from the dictatorship, the monarchy, to government of a republic, and then the loss of that government by manipulation of the organic law that deals with the property that belongs to the, the Confederacy. That's what you get in the post that I've written. Yep, and that's a good bridge point to my next question. I think it's pr apparent to most Americans that the Declaration of Independence was issued on behalf of each of the existing colonies, both collectively and individually, and that their individual sovereignty was not up for bargaining. So how is it that, like in Star Trek terms, that they had no intention of being assimilated into the Borg, and who, how, and when did some political arm wrestling start to subjugate the people's rights and their states' rights under that single federal management team? Well, the uh, the discovery, the, the, the rude awakening that the states have is that once the people are freed from the dictatorship of the monarchy or the, the czar or the Caesar whatever dictator is, is in power, once the people are freed from that, they're free. And it's, it's going to be impossible to, to subject them to, to uh, tyrannical rule or even just plain old government uh, rule. Again, they have to be tricked in, into submitting, subjecting themselves back to a governor. The uh, self-government, self-government really means uh, just control over your own actions because you have no power to govern your neighbor. You have no power to tax your neighbor. You have really no government power over anyone else but yourself. That was the ultimate realization 
that uh, le- led to the uh, Articles of Confederation, where the states had to cre- create a association with the other states and allow the people of those states to freely opt out of being governed by claiming re-inhabitants rather than citizens of a particular state. On that subject, Ed, isn't it true that there have been no fewer than three to four Supreme Court rulings, we'll deal with the the qualifications of the Supreme Court later, but to date, there's at least three or four that were issued in the 1800s that simply agreed and declared that sovereignty devolved from the King of England to the individual men and women of America, but that they were sovereigns without subjects. And basically, it meant that America, if it was to go forward, had to be a nation of individuals constructing treaties between each other. Isn't that about right? It is just about right. And treaty is a good word for it because there's no obligation to, to make peace with your adversary or neighbor or friend. And it seemed to be difficult for the politicians of the day. And they might want to come up with a streamlined version uh, to get around that reality. Well, there were no politicians if that uh, idea succeeded. There would be no uh, government. Everybody would get along because they had to. You're talking about a controlled anarchy, aren't you? Yeah, but I think that that really is uh, the, the the best way to run a, a large organization is to uh, allow people to come to uh, uh, agreements and test associations and, and rules on their own rather than be uh, dictated to. Just because you're a sovereign does not mean you cannot descend from the position of sovereign to enter into a contract, correct? That's right. So, you can then come up with a practical solution for the dilemma just by that basis. And the Constitution itself, as the final document of the four documents that you present, guarantees no interference with contracts, correct? That's right. There are a lot of, there are a lot of nice things that are in, in, the, in the Constitution, but it's got to be understood that that document was not... It's not what people claim it is. It's not a uh, creation of a of a uh, government. It's only a a a, uh, a gloss, a uh, an alteration of the existing government under the Articles of Confederation. What the uh, the Constitution really is is a uh, is a uh, organization for the management of the territory that that would f- fell into the hands of the. Confederacy at the conclusion of the uh, Revolutionary War, the Northwest Territory. Well, isn't it true? Congress still applies the label organic laws of the United States of America to their published versions of all four written laws, and nowhere is it to be found that there are any instructions, footnotes, asterisks, or anything else to tell the reader that the Constitution replaced the Articles of Confederation. That's just a uh, a presupposition by certain politicians that would like people to think that. Is that true? That's true. Uh, what 
written law is written exactly as it's supposed to be, and that means that people are not to be governed. What is what is the, the government that we uh, understand to be uh, written about in the Constitution is a, is a controlled organization that manages the territory and other property that belongs to the Confederacy. And so the Confederacy is holding on to that property just long enough for the people to take it over, to buy it. Right. You know, I know that it sounds kind of crazy to say it this way, but I think at law it's actually true if I say it this way, based upon my research. But you know what? I could be wrong. It might have been simpler. Instead of saying, we the people, they could have said, we the kings and queens. And, in effect, when George tossed off his mantle of power to the individual people of America, and they all became sovereigns, and, of course, today, if you use the word sovereign, you must be a political maniac, and you should be in a FEMA camp. But it's just the uh, contemporary name-calling process, where, you know, a hundred years ago, the word Negro was not a, uh, a derogatory term, but now here in Chicago in 2016, it's a derogatory term. So words over time take on different meanings, and sovereign also has become a derogatory term in American politics. That aside, the American people are the sovereigns. They are the kings and queens of this country. And I think what you're saying is that there is no law that the Congress can pass to govern their authors of government. Is that right? Well, you have to look at words that, that create law very critically. And when you have a, a, something like the preamble, which is the, where you get the we the people of the United States, you have to figure out who these people are and what is the United States. Because the United States isn't a confederacy. You can you can start parsing out the words in, in the in the preamble and come up with a whole different version of what those act, what those words actually meant and were supposed to mean, because written law is a, is a statement of of something that is actually the the law, something that is actually real. People's impression or opinion of that is just an opinion or an impression. And in the view of Justice Scalia. It should be absolutely interpreted by how it was written in the context of when it was written and not subject to interpretation by, you know, hippies like me or conservatives like Donald Trump later on. You know, it should be tried to be perceived exactly as it was meant. That's right. And the way you do that you, is, is the trick because you, you just say, well, we're going to interpret it this way because... Uh, isolated from all the rest of the document and the, or the rest of the four organic laws, this particular piece of information from the, those organic laws means this. It, they all have to be written, written and understood together. I agree. It, you know, one of the things that just blows my mind, after I started looking into a lot of these things, as a lot of us here in America have done, especially on this wonderful little show that we share, no place that I can find in the Constitution or any other recorded act of Congress or their publications, including the Federal Register, is there an existence of a declaration or act of Congress causing the Constitution 
to replace, repeal, or nullify any of the three previous organic laws. And, you know, Congress, with all their lawyers as advisors, is really good about making sure they don't screw up. So, how is that possible? And if that was not intentional? Well, what you said is, is, is almost entirely correct, except that there is a place in the organic laws where there is an organic law, a previous organic law, is repealed. And that's in the Northwest Ordinance. And the very last sentence repeals the old Northwest Ordinance, which was re- the resolution of April 23, 1784, which made the Northwest Territory part of the United States of America, the Confederacy, which is where you get the identity of the uh, of the people. Those are the people, the people who were uh, on the the territory that was uh, received from Great Britain in the Peace Treaty of uh, Paris, Treaty of Paris of 1783. The uh, the people are like the people of Puerto Rico. They're citizens of the United States, but not of a not of a state of the United States. So back then, in, in uh, the late 1700s, the Constitution spoke, spoke of we the people as the citizens, of the future citizens of the Northwest Territory and similar territory that would be the rest of the United States of America. Those were the people. The citizens of the United States were different. Those were the citizens of the states, the original 13. And by being a citizen of an original state, you automatically had citizenship within the Union. That's right, because the, because the Union was in charge of the passports. The Union was a representative of the states and had no, the only territory they did have had was by ownership, the proprietary power. And this is what we teach in the course, is that the government of the United States of America, under the uh, Congress of, of that entity, could make laws but only for the territory that it owned and the people on that territory. That continues to today. So that they're making laws just for citizens of the United States, which are the old people of the people of the United States in the, in the preamble, but not for the people in the states. There's a lot of emphasis placed on a particular phrase, I think it's in Article 6 of the Constitution, where this Constitution and all treaties made shall be the law of the land. Why is it that the law of the land should be limited to the land that is owned by Congress and is not supposed to apply to the people or their land? Well, for the simple reason that that's the only power that Congress has. They don't have power over people. That was that was given up when the when the king was uh, thrown out, thrown out of uh, power in, in America. All power over the people was eliminated. So they were freed. That's why the, the Americans are free, is because there's no king. There being no king, there's no government. So you have to consent to something that was created in the in the Constitution, which is a an organization based upon. A corporation, and you buy into that corporation by becoming a citizen of the United States. But by what means has the federal government been nibbling away at private property to make it theirs? Well, they pretend that they're making that they're uh, they're legally constituted to make laws for the people because they they screw around with the language so that everybody believes we the people is us. So we the people is the people on the federal territory. 
you can you can look at the document. It's just it's just one sentence. So you can look at the that uh, sentence and see that we the people of the United States do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. Well, there's the Confederacy. The the, the Constitution is, is is created for the Confederacy so that it can manage its property properly. Because it, now it's got the approval of the original 13 states to manage the federal territory. But now I'm completely confused the way that just sounded to me. Let me just say what I heard. We the people of the United States, not of the United States of America, do ordain this Constitution for the people of the United States of America. No, it's not for the people, for the United States of America. Or do ordain this Constitution for the United States of America. Well, that sounds like, you know, an interloper sticking their nose into my business and making a declaration over something that they've got no business making a claim on. It sounds like that, but it isn't, because what, what, the, what the preamble is saying is that the people on federal territory who really have no rights other than those rights that are given to them by Congress are going to ordain and establish this Constitution, not some other Constitution, but this Constitution, which is the the uh, one of September 17, 1787, that's the date that it was signed by uh, all the other delegates, including George Washington, who was the president. But it's not signed at any other time. My oh my! It's not accepted. It's not adopted by government. So when something is not adopted by government, it's not. It has nothing to do with government except that it's part of the organization of government, which makes it just a corporation. A corporation is is created also by organic law, because so, organic law creates it, something. Is this like Walmart making a decision for the American people? Well, Walmart does make decisions for a, a part of the American people. It's customers. But it also has employees and it has managers, because it is a corporation. But in this respect, it's making a presumption that everybody's going to follow along. Well, that's that's why I like Walmart, because it's, it's, yeah, I don't have to go there. But when I do, it's my choice. The government is different. The government is something that you have to do. Well, if you were, if there was a king, then you'd have to bow down to the king and kowtow to uh, a dictator. Well, in effect, isn't the United States of America just a big co-op and insurance company created by the several states themselves for their collective uh, protection? For their collective protection, yes. It's a, it's a confederacy that has definite powers transferred to it. They're, they're delegated powers from the states, but from the states, not from the people. The, the basic power that was, was delegated to the, to the confederacy was the power to make war and to defend in a, in, a, in a war. Retained by the people, too. They still have an obligation to defend themselves. So are you saying that people that live within a state don't necessarily have to assent to or agree to actions by a particular state government that surrounds their property? All state governments are, are a subdivision of the federal government. Which means they're they're subject. They, their laws apply to the same property that that uh, the, the the federal law applies to federal territory. Ed, that's really confusing because I always thought the way I read the organic process of America, were that the states exist first 
and then the federal government exists by their creation. So that they're not subdivisions of the federal government, but the federal government is a creation of them. Now, please explain that, because I'm confused. Well, we start off with the idea that once you get rid of the king, you get rid of government. How do you reinstitute government on, on a people that are, that are now free? It can't be done. So how it's done is just a matter of, of how, we, uh, how we interpret history. And the way, the way it's interpreted is, well, they came up with this idea, let's create a constitution that's going to give the government power and, and, uh, and create a central government with a lot of power. And, and, and uh, believing that makes it so. But it's not true. It's just a, it's just a matter of manipulation of the words so that you create the idea that people have a, a government that controls them when actually they're, people are free. How, how do you define freedom unless it's the absence of, of uh, written law? Are, are you really telling me that this is all just make-believe? Yeah, absolutely. That's what it is. It's make-believe. Well, this is, a, this is the crux of the course, is how to, teaching you how to, how to look at the, at the, at the words and, and come, come away with an understanding. Hey, this is just pretend. It's like uh, playing cops and robbers or uh, cowboys and Indians in your backyard. And uh, when we were kids, I mean, God, that's uh, totally unacceptable today politically. But, you know, when we were kids, it was totally fine to go out there and play adversarial roles in your backyard until your mom called you in for dinner. But you're saying that this is like taking that belief system of cops and robbers or whatever and moving it into reality. Well, that's all really life is anyway, is to pretend. How much of what we do is real. So it's really just a way of re-examining what's important to people. And uh, the basic things that you cannot quantify in words is, is, is the reality. And the, and the words are to be examined as, to see what are you being fooled into doing something that shouldn't. Well, personally, I just don't know why people don't like reality, because I love growing a garden myself. Um, additionally, as a comparison to today's make-believe securitization schemes, could the United States also be described as a great big pulling and servicing agreement using resources pledged by the states to pay for their mutual defense and commercial arbitration? It just seems to me that these are just an extenuation of individual people that don't want to take individual responsibility and pulling it and servicing it across a broad spectrum of other people so that their next-door neighbor pays for the, when they smash into somebody's car. You know, it just to me it seems irresponsible, but, you know, is that where we're going with all that? Is that the purpose of this? Well, it's all going to collide in a big crash because you can't have something good that results from a lie. The, the lie is, is eventually revealed and people just lose interest in uh, continuing the, the lying. That, that's what, I think that's what's happening now, and especially now that we've discovered it, exactly how it was put together and, and accomplished. So, again, take us back to the old days, and explain, if you can, 
How did those elected officials of the federal government grow their own head and become the creature from the Black Lagoon to convince the people that they were subjects to their own creation? I really want to know, where do you think that happened? Okay, you have the release of freedom in the Declaration of Independence. Everybody's free in America once you get rid of the king. So they just had to have the war with the king in order to defeat him. And so they did, but they did that, and they, they, that was accomplished under the Articles of Confederation. So the system of government that, that existed at that time was sufficient to defeat the world's greatest military power. They had a lot going for it, but what politicians didn't didn't like is that they weren't included in the operation of the, of the freedom of the people. So they devised a, a plan around the Northwest Ordinance to create a, a, a government over people that they had really control over because you can't squat on somebody else's land and, 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 and build a, uh, an, an economy around that. So the Confederacy built a, a, an organization around the, the ownership of the Northwest Territory, which is several states now, including Illinois. Yeah, I often wonder, the people who own property in Illinois have a different status than people that own property in Connecticut? No, it's not a matter of title. Title is not not really much in dispute. It's the cloud on title that is caused by claims of the government saying that they have a right to to uh, have a say in how your, your property is used. Seriously, though, what if you're sitting on an original land grant, like in my case, from President Polk to a gentleman named Eber Chapin, and I have traced the title back, and I've made a claim that I've got clear title back to that original land grant for my property, and that all of the inherent and assigned attributes of that original land grant are mine. Okay? Now, where's the federal government coming into my bedroom? <laughs> because it's... Because it's, it's he claims, and you have probably said that you are a U.S. citizen. Remember the 14th Amendment? The U.S. Citizen, you're a U.S. citizen if you're born within the United States and are subject to its jurisdiction. I try to maintain a sense of neutrality here, but believe me, I've done a couple things that would rebut those presumptions. Well, it's, yeah, but it's everybody believes it. Remember, the whole we're talking about is a belief system, not actual reality. The reality is we're all free. And the government is limited to what it owns, just like everybody else is limited to what you own. So what you're saying is that my jury of peers will crucify me? Yeah, because you, because your peers are those people who are, think that they're 14th Amendment citizens, subject to the, the jurisdiction of the United States. Lovely. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's where, where, where my... Uh, school comes in, my institute for uh, organic law, is to, well, to the, instruct people into how, how, do you, how do you explain that uh, you, you want out of the system, you want out of that particular organization, you want to be free, enjoy the you freedom. And, between you and Dr. Graves, son of Florida, I wish you the best, and I will do my best to help keep letting everybody know about it, but um, my oh my, that's an uphill battle. 
Well, it was so, an uphill battle until we made some of these significant discoveries. It's easy now, I think. Before we have to take a break here, let's talk a little bit about how all this stuff applies to the courts. You say that the government doesn't want you to know how the courts have been rigged in their favor. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Well, people go to the people. Why do people go to a court? I mean, let's, let's say they have they have no idea what the courts really are or how they've been created. They have uh, faith in the law. They're law-abiding citizens, so they think if they go to go to the court, they'll get justice, which is a, an abstract term of unwritten law: justice, equality, freedom. All those are, are abstract qualities of, of unwritten law. But the courts are written law courts. The written law is the law for the government. The law is written for the government, by the government. It's skewed in their favor. You, you probably never get justice in a, in a court of law because the law is, belongs to the government. So how did the ratification of the Constitution create a Supreme Court with some judicial power but without a specific number of judges and without any authority over the people's disputes. Remember, they're creating, they're secretly creating a government for the land that they own. It's like you're, 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 uh, the land that you own had handed down from President Polk to you. That, that is your property to do with as you wish. So that's what the government thinks. We have, we're on. We're making law for the United States, having tricked you into believing that you're in the United States instead of a state of the United States of America. And so that's the way they gain power over you. You believe something that's not true. And they're not going to tell you the truth because they have no, they have no authority to do so. Because they can't. You have to know the law independently of what they... You shouldn't believe the government. Good grief. It's almost like trying to convince people that the United States versus the United States of America, and why don't you continue printing of America? And they go, well, we're just trying to save ink to save the budget so it costs taxpayers less money. No, no, they're telling you the truth. The United States is different from the United States of America. That's why it's different. If you go into the Constitution you, and, and you go to Article 1 and look for a president of the United States, you'll find one. If you go to Article 2 and look for a President of the United States of America, you'll find another one. There's a, a President of the United States of America, and there's a President of the United States. And there's another one. Uh, there's a President of the United States who is uh, not an employee, because the President of the United States who takes the oath in Article 2 to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the, uh, the, Constitution of the United States is an employee. What the other one is? is an officer of the government because he takes an oath to support this Constitution. So, Ed, it's sitting there in plain sight. It has to be in plain sight. It has to be unequivocal. It's got to be just as it's stated right in the document. And it is. But everybody makes the mistake of believing what they're told. Wow. At this point in time, I, I want a refund from my college uh, American history and government class. <laughs> Good luck. Well, you know, uh, my youngest son just graduated from there this past weekend, so I still have a relationship with the business office. Maybe I'll go back and say, I want 350 <laughs> <laughs> You 
You know, you guys taught me a bunch of bullshit. Anyway, we're getting close to our break here. Where should we wrap up on a question about this stuff? It's amazing, all the stuff that you know, sir. And uh, I think we could probably keep you on the phone for three days, but of course we'd have to put you on life support. And uh, I'm not sure if the group here is ready for that. How about this for a closing question? If we're operating under a de democratic de facto government, pretending to be the heir or a sign of the Republican form of government mandated and guaranteed in the Constitution, how does all that matter, and what the heck are we supposed to do about it? Well, I think it all has to do with voting. You vote Democrat or you vote Republican. And you're making a choice between, well, are we going to do it based upon everybody has a vote and they can vote, out, vote the rascals out, vote the rascals in, or is it going to be Republican where we have uh, voting for offices? And if those offices, officers don't work out, we impeach them. Uh, the whole idea of what a republic is and what a democracy is, and uh, there's a blend of both of them, and so it, it, it actually results in voting for corporate regulation by Democrats or corporate regulation by Republicans, people who are aligned with either party. Well... In my experience, I've observed the two-party system go on to steroids, and it no longer actually represents any of their fundamental beliefs. Um, a lot of people don't even recognize the fact that the Republican Party used to be the party of Abraham Lincoln, who freed the slaves. And now, everybody goes, oh, they hate the black people, and they want to just have all the white business people win. So, I mean, the, the diversity and the changes and the dynamics of American politics and, and just using a name or a label to associate a, a way of thinking by that label is completely, in my mind, erroneous. Anytime you put a tag on something, I think it was uh, Richard Bach, uh, author of Jonathan Livingston Siegel and uh, a number of other great books, um, in his book one, talked about how if you create a law and write it down and it becomes static, it becomes frozen and useless, and that the law must remain unwritten and dynamic. And that once you write it down, it gets screwed up. And, you know, the same thing can be said of political parties, that once you write it down, it gets screwed up. I don't know what's happening in America today, I pray for my kids and grandkids that we can do a better job than our parents, grandparents, and everybody else did because the level of our ability to read and understand language is so much better. We have the Internet. We have so many things going on for us today that allow us to communicate with each other in ways that were never possible before. So we can actually go right around all of the powers that be and talk to each other directly. And I pray to that we can utilize these tools and resources to make a difference, not for me, but for my kids and grandkids and yours. All right? With that, would you like to take a break and uh, have some questions from our audience? I uh, sure would. All right. Everybody will take a couple-minute break. 
And we will be right back with our wonderful guest, Dr. Ed Rivera, and some fascinating facts and opinions. I hope that you can all take a moment to uh, refresh yourselves and prepare yourselves for some good Q&A. Remember, this man has definitely been around the block, <laughs> and he's probably older than all of you on the call, and I've got to give him a lot of props for being able to stay with us this long. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we will be back in a couple minutes. Thank you very much. Welcome to the Gallant Goose and Friends, a weekly production of the Gallant Goose Radio Network, airing live from coast to coast and around the world on Thursday nights at 645 Eastern here on TalkShoe.com, program number 139-335. This is your MC and musical tour guide, Big Papa Stanley, reminding y'all, when it comes to saving your house, don't let the Banker Blues stop you from getting all your clues. The primary focus of this interactive program is to discuss mortgage foreclosure defense and attack strategies and related homeowner issues with our guests and callers. We come to you from the birthplace of the American Bar Association and the home of Abraham Lincoln, Al Capone, The Untouchables, and Operation Greylord, where the motto is, vote early, vote often, and according to some politicians, even when you're dead. Here you'll find general information about home loans and ownership, notes and mortgages, as well as pointers on lenders, banks, funding, securitization, regulations, titles, credit damage, and more, plus different forms of resolution when things go wrong between homeowners and lenders, including RESPA, FDCPA, and TILA rescission. With the help of our guests, we'll try and find general answers to your questions on these and other popular topics. Now please remember, this program is for general information only. No official advice regarding accounting, law, taxes, or other regulated services given here. If you need a lawyer or accountant, please hire one authorized to work in your state. Thank y'all for being here tonight. Let's try and help each other. Welcome back, everybody. If you're just tuning in, we are here with our guest, organic American law researcher, author, and former attorney, Professor Dr. Ed Rivera. Everybody, if you'd like to, please press star 8 on your telephone to raise your hand, and that will put you into the queue. All right, we will begin with Idaho. Hello, Idaho. Could you state your name and uh, what your question is for Dr. Rivera? Uh, hi, Dr. Rivera. This is Jeff from Idaho, one of your least productive students, but I have an uh, important question for you. Um, to uh, put the uh, Articles of Confederation back in as the form of government, if Donald Trump is in place, I have a person on RBN that is working with him right now as a consultant, 
could you write me up something to do that and to take the, the correct dose? Would you be willing to try and do that for me? I'll, this is what I'll do. I'll review what you guys put together. Okay. All right. Well, uh, I, I have a... When he's in California, if, uh, if the Trump team was to want to talk to you, could you make time for them about something Absolutely. like that? Absolutely. I'll talk to all those politicians. Okay. I will, because I, I, I have an in with... Uh, that I've been trying to do this your uh, your article of the Federation Party since last year and I've it's it's worked so I just I'll email you tonight uh, like I do and then uh, the contact that I've got about it okay okay thank you that's all I need okay bye now all right thank you so much going on to California hi California could you please state your name and your question for Doctor Rivera hello hello. Yeah, me, okay. My name is Daniel, Southern California. Hello, Daniel, in Southern California. What's your yeah, question, Dr. Yeah, and I appreciate the time. My question is, I've been on this uh, quest to learning the the uh, Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and so forth, and one of the people, and a man living in the past. So, basically, I've been on this path the last few years, I've been held in contempt for asking for a basic motions hearing. I've uh, claimed, you know, I've, I've challenged all three jurisdictions. Uh, I just did a year in the men's county jail for one uh, year. I was uh, sentenced for not rolling my window all the way down at a traffic stop for a speeding ticket. I mean, I've, you know, I've gone through the UCCs. I've gone through... Everything that I can pretty much challenge and try to uh, self-represent, my Sixth Amendment right was taken away from me. I've had judges lie to the jury. I've had public defenders forced upon me, uh, a psychiatric evaluations deemed competent and still not allowed to represent myself, held in contempt for asking for a motions hearing, um, and an, uh, just an array of many different things. My question is, how could someone like me who, is me, who is trying to stand up for our, I guess, quote-unquote, inalienable rights and get any kind of credence to be able to get anywhere in these courts? I filed, a, actually recently had to file a federal lawsuit in U.S. District Court, and I did that against 37 entities in Los Angeles, and I think that's one of the reasons that I was in jail for giving a year sentence for not rolling my window down at a traffic stop. And this case is still going. It's um, in the Los Angeles U.S. District Court, and they're now trying to dismiss the case because I filed defaults on everybody because they haven't answered my, uh, my complaint or my amended complaint. What kind of, uh, I guess, suggestions could I get from uh, Dr. Uh, Mr. Rivera in this matter uh, going through what I'm going through? Well, you, you made a misstep. Uh, and a lot of people do this. They, they uh, equate the, uh, the traffic laws with uh, some power to, uh, to travel, some right to travel, absolute right to travel. And, and that's, that's a dangerous thing to do because that's their first line of, of offense against the people is the registration of vehicles, uh, the uh, licensing of, of operators of those vehicles. 
And uh, they do that by the, the the strongest power they have, which is their military power. You know, you notice that the, uh, the highway patrol or the local police all are uniformed officers. They, they have their SWAT teams now. They, they they're fully armed and are ready for uh, for bear. So you, you can't attack their strongest point and uh, and succeed. So the the, the the best way to to attack their system, I think. <laughs> Is through their uh, property taxes, because that's that's what they sustain their government with, and uh, the jury system. The, in California, it's very easy. The, the qualifications for a juror are that you have to be a U.S. citizen, which is a again a 14th Amendment citizen, or a citizen of, or a uh, one of the people of the United States in the, in the preamble, and you have to be a domiciliary of the state of California. The state of California is defined in their constitution as the inseparable part of the United States of America and the and the constitution of the United States is the supreme law of the land. What that tells you is the state of California is the federal territory in California. And this this is descriptive of the, all the states. All the states are the same have the same situation. The state of Illinois is the inseparable part of the United States of America, and, and the supreme, and the Constitution of the United States is the supreme law of the land. Ed, this is Greg. Can I jump in for a quick second for a question? Absolutely. Thank you. I believe that nobody in my neighborhood would ever say that they were not a U.S. citizen because they're not that sharp yet. So that, according to their own confession they would qualify to be a jurist. The thing that I think is possible here, if we can just, you know, play this out, is that you can say that I'm not a U.S. citizen and I can't prove it, and I I invite anybody to prove that I'm a U.S. citizen so that a jury of my peers would not be comprised of U.S. citizens. I, I have claimed USC 28-1746-1, which is without the United States. I've done my... You know, my on the driver's license or the piece of plastic, I have without prejudice one dash three oh eight two oh seven right on the card. I wasn't in commerce. I've done, I've done a lot of writing over the last three years, and I've, I've even rescinded or revoked the driver's license. Of course, the DMV refuses to to acknowledge it. I have done uh, an extreme amount of work in writing. And it seems like no matter what I do, even writ of errors, vacating judges' orders, and so forth, uh, a la Thornton, Mr. Bill Thornton, and, and other individuals' challenges over time. And no matter what I've done, it doesn't seem to get any uh, validity, you know, or they just steamroll right over. So what did you do to throw a, a smoke bomb into a beehive? <laughs> No, it wasn't a smoke bomb. Smoke bombs are our smoke is supposed to be uh, c- conducive to uh, supposed to it's supposed to calm the bees. Reduce stress that's caused by the disruption of the hive. So, what I'm saying is that if you're going to attack this a system, do it from the from a point of safety, not not in the traffic stop. This is just a, a warning to others who might want to implement uh, their freedom and directly by refusing to get a driver's license. There, there are more important ways of, of challenging the uh, 
existing law. I, I, I favor the property tax, objection to the property tax, because it's okay. easy to do, and it's, no one can defend it. No one can, can prove that it's uh, a, a real tax that she converted into a debt by an officer of the state. There are no officers of the state. One characteristic of the of the of the states is that they're all dictatorships, and the and the people who implement the laws are all employees. Well, that's the definition of a, of a dictatorship. That's what Adolf Hitler ran. Everybody was employed by the government, which was Adolf Hitler. And that's what we have today in the states. All the they've gotten rid of all the officers. There are no bonds or oaths required of anybody. It's all employees. Okay, was that helpful? It's very helpful. Do you know anything about the judicial societies or using King James Version or Title Three courts? Do they have any validity or, or credence as well? Are they accepted against these admiralty courts? Well, it's easier to to find a find a one of these people who is an elected employee of the government and to start harassing them about not knowing the law. And the, and the easy way for them to determine what the law really is is to ask the attorney general, whether it's an attorney general because it's military law. But the attorney general has an obligation to give an opinion as to what the law is to every elected officer in, in state government. So all the, all the officer in, that's elected, the, the government employee who's elected, has to do is ask the, the, the attorney general is the uh, property tax an obligation of uh, the property owner. I'd like to see a, 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 a response, an opinion from the, the attorney general to, uh, to that question. Yeah, I have actually subpoenaed Kamala Harris, and she quashed my subpoena. I've tried to get Jerry Brown. I've tried to get other local ombudsmen. Uh, tried to really, I've written a lot of letters and and uh, tried many different things. I've even got the IRS auditing me, trying to steal my home now. And basically, with the IRS, I've got them with a uh, basic offer to pay, and then I've defaulted them. But I don't know how powerful it is because they won't respond to my documents anymore, but they also are not harassing me anymore. Well, if you, if you just apply this particular rule, that just everybody is, a, is a, an employee of government except for the President of the United States. Okay. Is there, the only one that's does not it matter required? if you revoke your, your birth certificate, you revoke all these contracts It had nothing to do with your birth certificate. Remember, when you're born, you're an infant. You have no rights. You have no powers for life itself. But you're not a you're not a you're not a citizen, right? Citizen I understand. Is a person who exercises political rights, so you're safe with a with a birth certificate. Is what you do after you're uh, of age. The age your political age to be 18. You're on federal territory. Okay. It helps a little bit, but I'm not sure that I I am clear on what route to really take at this point with all the stuff. I'm, I'm you know I've done so many things, and I'm not sure that I have any uh, solid uh, path to go by. I guess maybe I should study more of the website uh, from Mr. Rivera. 
the basic uh, advice that I would give you is to extricate yourself from the legal entanglements that you have with the government by going into their stupid courts and uh, saving your home. My main thing now is saving the home uh, and, and trying to... Uh, they've even recently come by and stole my truck, and now I refuse to contract with them or go into their court, and all they've done with that is just uh, sent it to collections now instead of you know, bringing me into their courts because I refuse to go into any of their courts anymore, and I wasn't sure what to do with this U.S. District Court case if I should let them dismiss it and move on or continue to try to, you know, fight that against these entities. Well, uh, California, one of the uh, more interesting things that you could read is written by a man by, his name is Mr. Mercier, M-E-R-C-I-E-R, and his book is called Hidden Contracts. And it's a great primer. It's a very long primer. And when you get through it about halfway, you're going to be ready to commit suicide because it sounds like there's no way out. And then at the end of the book, he actually tells you about how to get out. Okay. So it's a phenomenal book. Look up Mercier, M-E-R-C-I-E-R, uh, Hidden Contracts. All right. He basically tells you when Thank you walk you, out. Thanks. When you walk out of your house in the morning and step onto the front sidewalk that's owned by the public, you just entered into a contract. So when everybody starts thinking about those kinds of things, that, you know, you roll over in your bed and you kiss your wife good morning and you just entered into a new contract. And that's how the money people and the government people treat everybody, that everything is a presumed contract, everything. And, of course, the Constitution guarantees the protection of all contracts. So... That's why there's no constitutional government in a court case, I think, because everything is about governing contracts. And the Constitution doesn't apply there. But that's only Greg DeGoose's opinion. What do you think, Dr. Ed? Well, the government is a, is a corporation, so the, the only thing a, a corporation can do is, is uh, negotiate a contract with people. People negotiate con contracts with government all the time. Okay, let's go to somewhere in Illinois. Good evening, Illinois. Uh, please state your name and your question for Dr. Ed. Hi. Uh, uh, yes, uh, my name's Kathy. Um, Dr. Rivier, according to your website, um, nobody can be free in America without control of the land upon which they live. Now, how does one recover ownership in, in a allodial style so that all foreign interests are dispatched and that the ownership is uh, rests back in the manner of the woman possessing the land. Are there any claims against your property? There were, yes. But they're not now? Correct. Well, then you, you have free title. There's no cloud on your title. There's oh, no, there, okay. are, there are no other claims. Now, what if what if another claimant comes forward? Well, you would probably easily defeat that claim because you're in possession. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I, mean, I just wanted one to think you shouldn't that. have to worry about. Oh, Ed, I think that I think she's drawing a line between title and deed. All right. I think she's talking about the difference between uh, real estate law and land law. 
antecedent land law, where a man can actually own all three elements of property, the right to dispose, the right to possess, and the right to enjoy, where in most law schools they teach attorneys today that nobody can own any land and you can only have title. All right? And I think that's where she's going with this. Is that right, Kathy? That is correct, yes. Well, there are a lot of uh, property ownership or, or, or the, the benefits of property are, are just a bundle of rights, all kinds of rights. If you go beyond the beyond three, possession or ownership or uh, use, it's everything. And so there's there is no claim by government that they have a better title or ownership than you. It's that they have a claim based on, based, based upon the Constitution. It's usually an eminent domain with the states has the power to tax you for benefits that they provide. Yeah, but what if you what if you sent them a letter and said, Thank you very much for your offer for your benefits. I don't want any. What you what you have to do is go back and, and take your property off of the uh, uh property tax rolls. Sounds like a remarkable idea. How would one do that? It's, well, it's hard to do because it means a lot of money to them, and if everybody did it, the whole system would collapse. But then we'd go back to a system where people had freedom. Okay, so how would one initiate that process? That's you a- notice on the on the property tax assessor and property tax collector uh, that you have investigated their offices and they have no authority to do what they, they claim that they have power to do, which is... Which is true. They have none, none of those offices have any power to, to create a debt from a tax. A tax is just a calculation. Uh, property tax is uh, based upon an assessment, a value, an appraisal of what your property is worth times the tax rate. Ed, but isn't it also operating on a presumption that the county or some other government or organization owns your land and you're just a tenant? No, it's not. It's not based on that at all. It's based on the the power that they have being a government, which is a false claim anyway. Remember, we we settled that with the organic law. They have no they they have no ownership. They only, the only ownership they have is of federal territory, national parks, military bases. Okay, Ed. But That's so what they control. That's what they're making laws for. All right. Between you and me and the fence post and everybody on this call, I've spoken with three of my good attorney friends that are not ridiculous maniacs, that are actually older guys that have been studying the law for a long time. The three of them agree that they were taught in law school that no man or woman can own their property in America that they can only have equitable and legal title, and that the third leg of the stool resides in the government. That's what they were told. Well, maybe maybe they went to school in England. Well, maybe that should be the uh, topic of uh, the next time you're on our show. You should you should look at the uh, Northwest Ordinance. The Northwest Ordinance begins with a statement that property is going to be uh, devised through uh, the fee simple, absolute ownership or absolute power over property. That's what the government sells. And when the government sells that, it, that they, they sell everything that they have. They don't retain no, no authority over that government, over that power that you have in wow. owning, 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 owning that land that they sold you. 
All right. So anybody holding or the error a sign of an original land grant from the federal government owns it free and clear and fee simple forever. Yeah, what you have, if you examine what you have, your title, it's, it's, uh, there's no retention of any right in the government. And if the state comes in and starts charging you property tax on something that you have by virtue of a federal land grant, that's ultra-virus, isn't it? That's right. They have no authority. Remember, all these people are employees. They're just, just because they're elected doesn't make them an officer. An officer is one who has authority, and the authority that they had was over the territory that they owned. The government owned that territory. They had, therefore, they had the authority over that territory. Okay, um, Illinois. Does that help you out, or you got you got to follow up with that? Um, actually, that was perfect. He explains it very well. But I do have one more question for him, um, Doctor Rivera. Are are you? Um, Familiar with the United States being in interim at currently? Uh, what? About the United States being in interim. I don't understand that phrase. Maybe you spell it out. Spell that. I N T E R R E G N U M. It's a period when a normal government is suspended. Well, there's the only government that we really have is. Uh, aside from the states, and they're they're all branches, they're all parts of the uh, United States of America under the uh, Northwest Ordinance of the Constitution, which makes them just governments in name only, uh, who, whose laws are subject to execution only in uh, the territory that belongs to the United States of America. So they're governments of the United States of America with no land of their own. You lost me there. Well, what we think of as government is, is, is the, the Confederacy. The Confederacy was, is not replaced by the Constitution. The Constitution has not been adopted. In order to have a government, you have to have uh, officials who are sworn to support that government. And they do that by supporting the Constitution that creates that government, because the Constitution creates a government, creates a, a government for a private organization which is a corporation or other association and uh, or it creates for a government which is uh, a uh, on the basic level or on the uh, confederacy level the the United States of America so when, when you have, when you have no reserve no adoption, when you have no adoption then you don't have a government you have a corporation and so a corporation is voluntary as to everyone outside the officers of the, or owners of the corporation. All right. Um, for for those that might not have wrapped their head around where I think there was a ball dropped here, what I studied with uh, on Dr. Graves' website is that when the Articles of Confederation were approved by all of the colonies, ergo states, it was a 100% affirmation by all of the representatives of the people. When the Constitution was floated as a so-called improvement and or substitution, they passed a rule that only nine out of the 13 had to approve it, which means that a number of people were not bound to it. 
And the Articles of Confederation are actually a constitution of themselves, even though they don't use the word constitution in the Articles of Confederation. It functions as a constitution. And a lot of people don't recognize that because they don't want you to see that, I think. Isn't that right, Dr. Ed? That's right, because that that document contains Article 4, which which guarantees to the people of the states the, the right to choose not to be part of the government, not, not be bound by the political system. So you can be a free inhabitant, like being... Uh, a free person, just it, you're located within the, the boundaries of the state, but you have nothing to do with the state. You're free, just like you were when the Declaration of Independence did its magic and the revolution succeeded and King George was evicted. You're free, just like then. Yeah, well, but King George was only evicted in terms of political power. He was not evicted in terms of commercial power. Matter of fact, he was established as the Arch-Treasurer of the United States with all contracts and everything else pre-existing from immemorial back in England to be honored, including a percentage of all precious metals ever mined in America belonging to the king. Isn't that right? No, I don't believe anything unless it's written, and then I analyze that to determine its validity. I've never that's, seen anything that that's that's, that claim. Well, that's directly in the Treaty of Paris. I've read the Treaty of Paris, and it doesn't say that. Oh, it does. You know, we can go on wrestle over that one. <laughs> There's a, I think it's Article 3. It says that he gives up all his government, proprietary power, everything. They mean, well, you know what? We can, bring up, we can bring up that on our next call. Um, talk but, a little okay, bit more. Read your, read your uh, treaty of uh, September 3rd, 1783, in the meantime. Right, because as the Constitution says, this Constitution and all treaties made are the law of the land. <laughs> yeah, but the Constitution was ratified by the states but not adopted. You have to account for every word in the Constitution, and, and adoption appears twice. All right, so the, okay. that's a pretty good point. While you're on it, what's the difference between ratification and adoption? Ratification is recognition. The states recognize that their their delegates had produced this constitution, and now they were recognizing it. They were recognizing it primarily that the government of the, the United States of America, the Confederacy, these powers to manage the property that it owned. It was just a ratification, an acknowledgement of what uh, had already been done. Adoption is making something your own. And the government official has to make the Constitution his own in order to be bound by it. That's, that's the effect of Article Three, Article 6 of the, of the Constitution, is that all the representatives in Congress, Senate, the officers of the uh, executive department and the judiciary shall be bound to support this Constitution. None of that, none, none of that has happened. So it, it reverted into a private organization, which is the corporate United States. Thank you for clarifying that. Um, Illinois, uh, we have another caller with their hand up. Uh, are, are you good with that? I'm good. Go ahead and go to the next call. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Um, North Carolina, welcome to the call. Uh, Hi, good evening. This is Gordon in North Carolina. 
Um, Dr. Ed, thank you, and yeah. I certainly appreciate your clarity and your ability to cut through the clutter. This has been a great call so far. Um, thank you. I find myself on the wrong side of a foreclosure. Um, over a year ago, um, four different entities, and one of them, I believe, was myself as a as a uh, as not a, not a citizen, but as self-governing. I wasn't able to prove that, um, and it wasn't so important to me at the time to to, to know what I know now. But um, I'm wondering um, if if I have any legs to stand on. If you have any insight on tenancy as an issue, I did file um, a notice of interest and uh, fixed a dollar amount to it. Um, and so, under English common law, I believe I have a, a rights to. Um, a life estate and labor on the land, sweat on the land, and am I in the ballpark at all, Doctor Ed, or am I just dreaming, or is there any kind of tenancy issue I could I could um, could bring in? Well, if you look at your your uh, sale documents, what you got and what what law you're bound to, you might be able to show that there was fraud in, in or, or misrepresentation in, in presenting a, a law that is invalid, basically invalid because it's not it's extraterritorial, it doesn't apply to your property. But you have to be prepared to, to meet the argument that well the lender established a different law than the one that that applies to that particular property. Garden, I think yes. uh, you really need to give. Uh, Dr. Rivera, a little bit more background because he's thinking about this like somebody buying a house, and your situation is way more complicated. Yeah, it's a, well, and, and I wanted to sort of simplify it, but um, there's four different entities involved, and most of them, I mean, uh, even myself as a person, um, wasn't I was a, I guess a corporate identity, I, and I didn't, you know, tried to enter as a third-party intervener. Um, so the, the foreclosure was against the nonprofit primarily, and um, based on uh, a gift for, from um, the state. So um, we pretty much got rolled over, probably mostly because of my lack of I'm gonna say, savvy understanding, whatever, um, on the, of the law. What am I leaving out, Greg? What do you think is important here? Because I know you know the story. Gordon was the executive of a trust. The woman died. She had a will. There were three different entities that had an interest in the property. The, the woman before she died, the grantor, took out a reverse mortgage. Then he, he borrowed money from his wife, who's a millionaire, in order to pay off the reverse mortgage. His wife then foreclosed on him and the estate. And that's where he ended up. Well, I still hold to my original opinion. You check the law that applies. Because it, uh, when you're making a loan, either a purchase money loan or a hard money loan, you have uh, a document, a trustee or a mortgage, that is going to establish the law that's going to apply. You have to deal with that, and then you have to deal with the fact that you you might claim that you're entitled to common on common law territory. Could you replace that last sentence? Because I I heard some rustling in the background. I couldn't make out what you said, Doctor Ed. 
Well, there's a difference between uh, hard money uh, loans and uh, purchase money loans, and uh, the, the the lender in each of those has a right to set the type of law that's going to apply. So you check your document for that provision. And then your argument that uh, the common law applies is, is based upon the, the idea that uh, the, the territorial jurisdiction of that particular property is common law, because of, because the written law only applies to the federal territories. And since this is in North Carolina, it's actually an antecedent original state. But it doesn't matter because all, all the all the, the all the states. Uh, English common law, except for Louisiana, because they don't speak e- don't speak English. Uh, it's French, French uh, Roman law. All right. Okay, Garden, is that a good head start for you? It's a good head start, and I was told um, that the the tenancy thing was was going to be super easy to win um, by somebody in the know, but they never would reveal their understanding of the. They sort of blocked that from me, and. Um, and studying tons of stuff um, on the internet, or I, I have no real insight into the tenancy, except that that, that you know, that aside from traditional, I'm going to say points, this is this is definitely off the mark. I mean, it's it's going after something that most people wouldn't. Um, in any case, it, it's a big help, Doctor. I'll stay tuned to your to your channel and to your website to, for more insights. And thank you again for for your visit. You're welcome. All right, thank you, Gordon. Okay, um, everybody uh, reminding you again, just press star 8 on your telephone to raise your hand to ask a question. Um, Also, I forgot to mention earlier, if you're on the chat board and you're not on the call live, you're welcome to type in a question, and we will try to read that into the call so that uh, Dr. Rivera can know what your question is, so don't be bashful. While we are waiting for the audience to compose their thoughts, let's take a a look back at some of the things that we were thinking about talking about. You've done a lot of stuff with regards to examining the judiciary of America. You're right that the first Congress, instead of determining the number of federal judges to fill Article III's Supreme Court as defined, instead went off and created a new, separate, non-judicial Supreme Court with a Chief Justice and five associates, possibly under Article One or Article Four. Could you talk about that relationship of these courts, their essential differences, and what does that mean to us as Americans trying to go to court to have justice? Well, if you look at the uh, Chief Justice as uh, just the Vice President of the Corporation, you 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 you'll get a better understanding of what why uh, the courts, the so-called courts, are not uh, judicial but corporate. And you find uh, the chief justice in Article One, which is supposedly the legislative branch of of the, this new government under the Constitution. Everyone is taught that the first article describes the legislative branch because it, it mentions the, the Senate and the uh, House of Representatives, and that the uh, Article 2 has to do with the presidency because it, it has, contains the President of the United States of America and a bunch of other presidents, the president, the Office of President and the President, the oath for the Office of President of the United States. 
And then the third one is Article 3, which is the judiciary. When you build a court system around the chief justice, you have to contend with the fact that the chief justice has uh, the, the duty to preside at the impeachment of the president of the United States. So that tells you two things about the Constitution. The president of the United States is impeachable. Just all, all that has to happen is that the chief justice has to preside at the impeachment of the president of the United States. Or the requirement listed for impeachment of the president of the United States. And the description of what impeachment is makes the chief justice a non-judicial officer because impeachment is a legislative process, as you would expect in finding it in Article 1. Any court system created where the head of the courts is a non-judicial officer is suspect. In fact, it's plain outright not judicial. Right, it's definitely political. Well, I don't think we have to get into politics. It is, it's, it's, it's not even it's not even political because it's corporate. Because of what we're what, what's being done is you're creating a court system for property that is owned by the Confederacy. And in fact, what is happening in the Constitution is from Article One through the oath of office for the President of the United States, which is Article. Article 2, Section 1, Clause 8, that establishes the government for the United States, which is going to be the territory owned by the United States of America. The problem is it has to be adopted, because the adoption is provided in, in, in Article 2, Section 1, Clause 5, where it describes the duties and the requirements for the office of president, which is a separate office. You have to think of of all these names that they they give to the president. There's the president of the United States of America in Article Two, the president of the United States in Article One, and in Article uh, Two, Section One, Clause Five, you have an office of president, which you have to figure out who's this. Well, anyway, it was it was never filled by President uh, George Washington. Because George Washington couldn't qualify for that office. No one in America could qualify for that office when George Washington was elected President of the United States of America, which was April April 6, 1789, and not when he was President of the United States when he took the oath of office for that uh, position on April 30, 1789. So you have George Washington becoming President of the United States of America on April 6, before he he took all the oath of office for president of the United States on April 30th. Uh-huh. So using the Constitution to discover that it's not a real government is your is your first step to, toward achieving your your total independence and freedom from from government. Is that it's has it's not a government. It's just a, a an organization that's created to manage. What the government owns and what the government sells loses that the the government loses power over that property because it doesn't retain anything. Oh, it's meant to be. So to help folks in modern day vernacular, imagining the way I'm listening to this, we might say that the House of Representatives in an impeachment process is the human resources department of a company and. The Senate is the board of directors, who is then going to make an evaluation of the claims by the Human Resources Department. 
pretend that the Chief Justice is the neutral arbiter that all sides have agreed to to utilize instead of a trial. And that's for an Article One impeachment, because in Article Two, you have a different kind of impeachment where you have to have a reason. But in Article One, there's no reason. It's because uh, you have a, a, a system of government that was planned to be corporate rather than governmental, because the the uh, the oath of office is is an oath of employment. It's not an Article Six oath. So there's no claim of high misdemeanors of treason, none. No. So the, the only only condition for an impeachment of the president of the United States is that the chief justice shall preside. Those are the exact words, and you're not going to find any other language that uh, imposes duties of uh, judicial duties on the chief justice. So the chief what? justice is just a name, it's and it's a name that's not congruent with the, the name given in, to the judges in Article Three. Well, gosh, if only Bill Clinton and uh, Richard Nixon knew that, they could have just thumbed their nose at the entire thing, couldn't they? Well, I don't think they would because it, it's just too cushy a job to, to be president. It's Because they, they succeeded, didn't they? Clinton never saw the inside of a jail. Richard Nixon, who was even more guilty of crimes. Yeah, it's a new library, all kinds of wonderful things, you know, yeah. Lifetime protection uh, against the people who want to hurt you, which shouldn't be substantial. Ed, here in Chicago, where I grew up, we have a kind of a saying. The reason that the uh, district attorney declares that there is no such thing as the mafia anymore is because the government absorbed it. Well, it's the story about the district attorney, too. The district is the federal district. The, 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 the district attorney is an office that was employment of, uh, of local attorneys to be uh, bill collectors for the federal government because they were going to collect the playing cards and bows and arrows and uh, everything else that the, the government has collected taxes by, by requiring people to put stamps on, wrap around liquor bottles. You betcha. Ladies and gentlemen, it is approaching our two-hour mark here, and we'd like to give you one more chance for raising your hand by pressing star 8 on the phone or typing something onto the chat. We have been enjoying the past couple hours with our guest, Dr. Ed Rivera. If anybody would like to ask a question, please do this right now or forever hold your peace, at least till the next time we have him on the show. Hello, North Carolina. Thank you, Dr. Rivera, for your uh, excellent uh, explanation of our our concealed laws, <laughs> rule of the nation. I've got a question. If you've got, um, you discussed about contract, common law and contract. A contract that is between two parties that are in contract privity with each other, it's a private right that they enter the contract with themselves and involves nobody else. If the other principle in contract privity ends up being a non-existent legal fiction, obviously the contract is was never entered, bound, or consummated. How would an outside foreign entity that is not licensed in a state, that is not um, you know able to do business in a particular state, wouldn't their conduct to try to enforce something that was not enforceable, that was basically void by operation of law, 
Wouldn't that be tortious interference of contract? Well, if the entity is part of the one of the parties to the contract, it's not a it's not a, an abridgment of that right. Well, no, the party isn't. The party the is a non-existent legal fiction. In other words, it's not a party to the contract. It showed up later. Well, it was never part of the contract at all. It was never even disclosed. Well, then how did how did there an interference with the contract? Because they had, they were not in privity to the contract, and the contract was never consummated. So but what does this entity have to do with the contract? Excuse me. For the parties. I, I didn't hear you. What did you say? You said you, you said that there was a tortious interference with the contract by the. Well, the the recited party, you know, the party that was recited as a lender, didn't exist. They were a legal fiction. And, and this wasn't found out or wasn't known of or disclosed upon presentment. It was discovered a few months later. And under TILA rescission, invoking the TILA rescission for you know misrepresentation for nondisclosure, the contract, there was a tortious interference with the right to be in a private contract when a local court tries to invoke you know, jurisdiction and adjudicate issues when that court can't have jurisdiction over a private contract that was void ab initio. Am I correct? Am I wrong? Or am I... So you're saying that the tortious interference is by, is by the court? Well, it's by the court and the parties that filed the, that filed the case in the state when they, they weren't licensed or didn't, you know, they, weren't, they were foreign to the state. They didn't have a, you know, rights to do business in the state, and they didn't have a license to engage as a, as a lender or anything, originator or anything else. So they basically were just hijacking a contract that didn't exist or was never consummated. So you're saying that the court just allowed this to happen? Right, and then the court basically... That's the tortious interference. That's tortious interference, correct? Did you say yes? No. The problem with going against the courts is it, it, basically the idea that no judge can be held accountable for their actions. But what about if they don't have jurisdiction and they're not... Uh, 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 they're not a judiciary. They're just an employee of the court or employee. Well, that's of the all they are. But they get away with uh, all the trappings of of, of, uh, of law and, and. Well, they might get away with it, but that doesn't mean it's legal. No, they don't have jurisdiction. Legal. They can't adjudicate, they case, right? That's the illegal part of it. That's right. Would they be basically aiding and abetting when they did not have jurisdiction to even you know rule a case or to hear it? Well, I don't know. These are all just questions of mine. I, I really don't know. <laughs> That's the problem with our legal system is that it's not legal. Right. So anything, figure that out. Anything is possible. That's why you, you, you avoid the using the courts at all costs. Right, but if, if you're forced into it, if, if you know, you, it wasn't your. Well, then you would be, you would make all your allegations, all your uh, claims, and hope for the best. Okay. But as far as you know, constitutional rights to a private contract. Well, that, 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 I don't think that's being interfered with. It, basically, it's just a, a, a mischaracterization or a interlopers statement, misstatement of what what your identity. Okay. Yeah, and I think she's saying that on a piece of paper in the four corners of the contract, she was there and somebody else was there. Oh, no, that, nobody else was there. There wasn't anybody there. It wasn't, wasn't a closing. She believes somebody else was there. 
And then, when the dust settled, the one named on the contract didn't exist. And it was used basically as a big pronoun for someone else, but without any disclosure to her. At any time. At any time. Even after judicial hearings and after getting a judgment against them, they still didn't. They were in contempt of a court order. And they and how many billions of dollars have they already paid to the federal government for their nonsense? Right. right. Well, the entity right now is, uh, has the CFPB and a court of appeals on the RESPA case. That's how arrogant they are. Right. So they've already been proven to be fraudulent, uh, corrupt entity, right. Right. and uh, had a settlement with the uh, United States government in the billions of dollars, and yet they're still coming after individuals like you. Right. So. That's a really interesting thought, Ed. Well, Lydia, it appears as if the courts are on your side. I'm sorry, what? It appears as if the courts are on your side. Why would they be on my side? Well, I thought this, uh, there was a determination that this uh, entity was fraudulent. Well, yeah, that's that was the first court. The federal the federal court uh, adjudicated the entity, which is PHH. Everybody knows it. Um, was, you know, denied in its entirety. And it never appealed it and never moved for reconsideration, never, you know, did anything, just completely, you know, thumbed its nose up at, uh, you know, the court uh, order and contempt, total contempt. It's like it has absolutely no bearing on it. And it went ahead and filed a lawsuit in contempt of the court order denying it any rights. It ends up, I just found out in March that it, it's been Fannie Mae the entire time, but Fannie Mae was never, ever once disclosed. So I think what she's implying, Ed, is something that you have been saying for a long time, and that is behind every curtain is the federal government acting as the corporate interest for something that has not been disclosed. Well, I guess when you get into the details, that's what happens. Right. In every case, it doesn't matter whether there's a legitimate, uh, any part of it is legitimate in in some sense. But how do we start resolving this? How do we start pushing back? I think we should just stop calling it the federal government and call it King George. (laughs) Probably. I'll let you guys continue. Thank you very much, Greg, for the show, and uh, thank you, Dr. Rivera. All right, um, we're over. We're over the limit here, North Carolina. We're going to give you one more shot here briefly, and we've got to say good night, uh, North Carolina. Go ahead. Thank you in advance, and good night in advance. Um, just a quick spitballing, um, Dr. Rivera, um, uh, if you would. Um, so there's a there's a five hundred one c three corporation, not for profit educational corp, and um, in the box, 100%, been around for a long time, 20-plus years, versus a new entity that's out of the box. It's, it's an unregistered, I'm going to say, entity, and it's not a 501 anything. It's not a nonprofit. It's not um, – I mean, you could say it's – possibly you could say it's a educational organization, but slash – you, whatever works here, a religious organization. Um, so the main thing is out of the box. Do you have any feedback on this, or is this – am I making any sense? You're talking about two entities that are uh, 
differently as you described. It's different as you described. Right. One could replace the other, perhaps. But um, in other words, a, an entity that would hold real estate would not pay taxes, or would pay taxes, or well, there's there's two there's two kinds of property, uh, real property in in in, in America. It's owned by the government or not owned by the government. And so where it's not owned by the government, the common law applies. And where it is owned by the government, the federal law applies. And the laws of the state, where the property is claimed to be in the state. Do I understand this correctly, Ed, that you're saying that if the property is not owned by the federal government, they cannot force you into court of equity? But remember, equity is uh, is something that that the king that was the power of the king to over overcome uh, uh, a uh, judgment in common law. And all and all courts in chancery or courts of equity or probate. Well, they're actually not, have no power because you can't overcome uh, common law. Common law is the common law. For equity was the power of the chancellor. I'm going to cut Gordon off, and I'm going to ask you to answer this in anticipation of where he might want to go so we could close up our call for tonight because you've already been so generous with your time. How is it that we can move a case out of chancery, be it equity or probate, into common law when it's being held at a circuit court in X county? Well, I think the, the way to change the jurisdiction is to have the uh, jurisdiction of the court challenged by challenging the uh, attorney who's representing the, uh, the other party to, to produce evidence of, of ju jurisdiction in the court. So go after the plaintiff. Go after the plaintiff, yeah. Have improved jurisdiction. They're not, not, not pinned on the, the, the court because the court's going to deny they had they has any obligation to present its uh, jurisdiction to anybody. So it sounds to me like there might be a handful of very critical questions to ask the plaintiff to prove, which yeah. which might not well, be. If you go about it properly, and if you know uh, the, the organic laws, I think you can be successful. In fact, one of our students was very successful in a, in a, a credit card case. Where he defended his his uh, wife, challenging the jurisdiction of the of the court through the plaintiff's counsel. All right. It seems to me that anyone interested in for for this example, if you're interested in trying to learn how to move a case out of chancery or or, or probate um, at a circuit court level over to common law, getting it out of equity, you might want to give a look see over at. Uh, Dr. Rivera's website, maybe drop him a line and uh, ask him some questions about that because it sounds like he and his students have been doing some pretty good stuff there already. So, so Gordon, uh, I'm gonna, we're going to drop you off there. That's all the time we've got for tonight. Thank you all. You've all been great. Thank you, Dr. Rivera, for sticking with us. Please don't forget to check out the comments and resource links that we have on the chat board and on the email notices that we sent out earlier. To wrap it up, uh, we want to say thank you, Dr. Rivera, for coming out of the show tonight and sharing such helpful information with everybody on our flock. And as always, everyone, we encourage everybody to uh, email us at thegallantgoose at gmail.com with questions, comments, or suggestions for future guests. 
We hope the program has been helpful. Dr. Rivera, thank you so much. You're welcome. Seriously, let's maybe meet up and uh, talk about a future uh, meeting. Yeah, I like that. All right, terrific. That was a brief program note. Next week, uh, May 19th, we're going to have the duo of controversial homeowner defense activists, Bob Hurt and Storm Bradford, with their views on mortgage attack strategies. And we hope you'll all be able to attend. During the interim, please, you are all encouraged to visit our past and future guests' respective websites, our sponsors, and friends to listen again to the recorded shows here on the Gallant Goose and Friends. So just go to www.gallantgoose.com and follow the links to our talk shoe page. On behalf of our guest, Dr. Ed Rivera, and our dedicated team here at the Gallant Goose and Friends, we thank you all. Good night, everyone, and we will see you all next week. This is the Gallant Goose and Friends, airing live from coast to coast and around the world on Thursday nights at 645 Eastern here on TalkShoe.com, program number 139-335. This is Big Papa Stanley reminding y'all when it comes to saving your house, don't let the Bank of Blues stop you from getting all your clues. We thank y'all for being here tonight. I was born in Illinois. In a place they call Chicago I was born in Illinois A place they call Chicago Now see I was stuck on the city streets With a strong survivor I'm here to tell my story Outside in the zone they call the valley. For one, we bought penny candy, chased rats up and down the alley. I was born in Illinois, in a place they call Chicago. You see, I was schooled on the city street with a strong survivor. Seven, daddy worked two jobs, mama held it together, walked a mile to school, had to fight every day, sometimes I kept my lunch money, sometimes they took it away, I was born in Illinois, a place they call Chicago, Man. I had to make a decision I always knew I would be a musician No drug and a thug and doctor and lawyer for me I'm gonna play this guitar I'm gonna make the same plan I was born in Illinois A place they call Chicago
It is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.